Welcome to Lithium Ion Rocks, episode 22, The Clash. I was in London all last week for LME Week, which uh, I'm going to talk quite a bit about now. And we had the opportunity to interview Sophie Liu and James Frith of Bloomberg uh, New Energy Finance, now called, uh, I guess, Bloomberg NEF. They are the first in what will be a series of werewolves and London analyst uh, interviews. We'll be speaking to the Rosskill crew, as uh, well as Ken Hoffman of McKinsey, shortly. But first, I'm going to share some of my own thoughts and takeaways from uh, LME Week, including a short recording from uh, the Battery Metals uh, panel and some excerpts from the keynote speech by Rio Tinto's CEO, J.S. Jacques. And there was an incredible amount of news uh, coming out of Chile and in Argentina the last couple of weeks uh, and and last week while I was away and uh, in the social media ecosphere, I I picked up uh, some commentary, uh, which uh, I had a good opportunity to to meet Daniel Jimenez and uh, uh, clarify a a bit uh, some of his comments uh, in relation to Chile and foreign investment, in particular as it pertains to the uh, Maricunga project which is controlled by Lithium Power International, which announced an MOU with Chile's Cadelco. Uh, my feeling is that these in Chile will uh, not have an impact, at least in the short term, in, in, in the lithium supply. I think, uh, I'm probably also not in the long term in terms of the Atacama. Chile's legislation, however, makes it very difficult for the development of projects beyond what we have today. So uh, the only possibility to, to really develop projects in Chile today is, is to partner up with one of the state companies, and that's what um, one of the uh, projects is doing there um, in Fast Markets, uh, Will Adams gave the introductory presentation um, on battery materials. In relation to lithium, he put up an interesting slide sowing the seeds for the next lithium boom. Um, they have been correctly forecasting ever-falling prices uh, all year, but uh, demonstrated some optimism, it seemed, uh, at least in a forecast chart, of some sort of bottoming mid-next year, followed by a slow and then fast rise to 15000 by 2025. The slide also suggested that OEMs generally want short supply chains, so it's likely that they will invest in local supply but that could mean long lead times and was urging um, the time to invest is now. Ken Hoffman of McKinsey then led a panel where Daniel Jimenez, uh, formerly of SQM, and uh, Ernie Ortiz of Lithium Royalty, Sophie from BNEF, Martim Fasada, ex-Fast Markets, now a spodumene you know, and lithium chemical trader at SCB, as well as Charlotte Radford, uh, a reporter at Fast Markets. I feel that we will reach a moment where, without noticing it, our demand will be higher than the actual production, and we will not notice it because the stocks are depleting. But suddenly we will be at a point where stocks will be depleted, demand will be higher than actual production, and then we'll see again a boom. And then again a bust. But uh, I, I would say uh, today, investors, uh, mining companies, they should really look at this industry, not what's going to happen in the next year or two. They should really be looking at what's going to happen in three, four, five years. And when we, when we put this in perspective, uh, 
We're talking here today of a demand of 350,000 tons of lead carbon equivalent. Then five years from now, that will be probably three times the number. Maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, we don't know. But okay, one million tons. And we more or less know where those million tons are going to come from. But from 2025 to 2030, we'll need another million tons. And that today, we have no clue where it's going to come from. So, uh, it is, and, and to develop resources, we need four or five years to, to have them ready, and the money needs to be put into this industry today. So, um, we will need a very um, mature, consequent uh, industry to, to, to avoid, again, these booms and busts. Uh, unfortunately, we are faced with a very complicated situation right now, but I hope that the longer term view makes the industry act more rationally, particularly what's going to happen in four or five years from now. I have a from RK Equity. Um, you've seen a lot of investment in Western Australia, from Albemarle, who's now likely with mineral resources, and West Farmers and SQM. So there's, there's a lot of spodumene, and even though they've curtailed those plans for the time being, they could always you know, uh, turn that back on. There hasn't been a lot of talk about sustainability here, and uh, Volkswagen has talked about sourcing, you know, closer to where the battery manufacturing is. So, do you see um, these Western Australian things, and also the, the higher cost of the Tangi, and also uh, SQM has announced uh, even the cost of uh, Mount Holland is going to be a bit higher than, than expected. So, do you see over time in North America and in Europe um, uh, production of uh, mining and chemical plants uh, possibly complementing or displacing some of this in Australia, or how do you see that evolving? Yeah, so um, on the side of, of, um, of carbon footprint, I think uh, from, from what you gather from OEMs, uh, carbon footprint will be a very central decision-making factor on their purchasing. So, uh, to have a low carbon footprint will, will be essential to, or will give simply an advantage to certain resources above others or to certain producers above others. And I think efforts should be done in the industry to try to lower the carbon footprint because of the consumer's decision at the end of the day. With regards to the question whether uh, European lithium assets, which were going to be developed, was the question how Feeling is that in general uh, OEMs would like would like to have a very close, very tight supply chain. Uh, and yes, uh, ideally cell production here, ideally cattle production here, ideally mining here, close to the North American or European markets. But on the other hand, you don't see any actual uh, investment by OEMs or encouraging, really encouraging of OEMs in in the mining space. So uh, my feeling is that the closer you are to them, the more interested they are. So cell, cell production, yes, they're very interested. Cattle production, probably yes, but not that much. Lithium mining in general exists probably a little further away from some news regarding the uh, LME contract was that an advisory committee was set up a Reuters article mentioned that ultimately nine participants will be there, and they named five, Tesla, Jaguar, Tangxi, BASF, and Albemarle. 
the moderator, Ken Hoffman, asked all the panelists uh, if they thought uh, if lithium carbonate China battery grade uh, today is 7,000, where uh, in 12 months at LME w would it be? And uh, only one person, uh, Ernie Ortiz, said it would be higher. All of them uh, otherwise said it would be around the same. Some said slightly negative, uh, you know, slightly positive. I think uh, Sophie Liu said plus or minus 10% uh, either way. Uh, there was some more optimism, you know, from a few others, but uh, it's very difficult to, to get a sense. I attended a lot of events at LME. This uh, very much mating season is happening. I, there were representatives from Livent, Umicor, Johnson Matthey, you know, Aura Cobre, and a whole host of other companies uh, interacting and digesting. But it wasn't just lithium. It was much, LME week is much, much bigger than than lithium, and uh, it gave a very good perspective of the uh, iron ore market, steel market, uh, or um, aluminum market. Green aluminum uh, was a topic. Rio Tinto was the uh, keynote speaker the first day at LME, and his uh, his presentation and the one subsequent to that uh, panel was uh, all about sustainability, sustainability, ESG. This is... Uh, Big and increasing topic. These guys are minting cash with 60-plus EBITDA margins from their iron ore business, which uh, was significantly helped uh, on, by the unfortunate uh, tragedy at the Vale, um, you know, tailings dam. And, and that was uh, a bit of a topic. Uh, Anna Cabrel at uh, Sigma Resources' uh, presence was uh, very much felt uh, in London at uh, various events, but uh, very much focused on the green, sustainable uh, mining of uh, their deposit in, in Brazil and meeting many mine ministers and pension funds who are increasingly focused on uh, divesting of fossil fuels and ensuring companies like Rio uh, take a leadership role. In and they're starting to do that. Uh, Rio's a global company. The CEO is French. I ran into a bold Batar, the Mongolian, uh, who was quoted regarding the, the boron lithium asset. And uh, the excerpts from Jean Sebastian's speech here, you'll see the thought process, which is why uh, I think they are a bit incrementalist as it pertains to lithium. I absolutely believe we need to redefine our industry to make the most of a more complex world with different forces at play, challenging geopolitics, increased expectations from society, and changing technology. Sustainability, partnerships, and data will underpin everything that we do, and we need to be strong, proactive, and disciplined to win. The world will not wait for us. The time for change is now, and it is up to us to take our industry forward. We owe it to our loyal supporters, our shareholders, including many smallholders who have backed us over many years, our hundreds of thousands of employees and contractors, our suppliers and customers, and our host communities. We must also win the hearts and minds of future generations of employees and partners. From the year 2000, the scale and pace of China's development caught most of us by surprise, and we all scrambled to play catch-up. As a result, CapEx rose to extreme levels and mega M&A was de rigueur. It was a time when thinking big seemed like a good idea, when diversification and scale were the key drivers, sometimes at any cost, mostly backed by shareholders, bankers, lawyers, and advisors, I might add. From 2000 to 2010, the top 40 companies in the industry 
invested $300 billion in CapEx, and spent a further $600 billion in M&A. This led to a staggering $250 billion in impairments. This pattern continued until 2013 when commodity prices fell and asset quality became important and we stopped chasing growth for the sake of it. But the DNA of the industry was still volume and cost focused. A race to the top for more tons and a race to the bottom for the lowest unit cost possible, rather than returns and margins. As prices declined, CapEx returned to more modest levels, $125 billion in 2015 versus $60 billion in 2019. And companies focused on, on deleveraging. Industry gearing peaked at around 46% during the decade and finished 2018 at around 28%. Of course, shareholders have been rewarded for their patience after the excess of the 2000s with greater returns. The owners of the top 40 mining companies have received around $400 billion in cash returns through dividends and share buybacks over the last 10 years versus $140 billion in the previous decade. That's almost three times as much. But shareholders have, been, have not been our only focus. The industry is also responding to greater expectations from society in a new sustainability age. This is more than a fad. It is a structural shift and in many respects, this year has been an awful wake-up call for the industry with tailings, safety, and environmental tragedies. What we have learned from this is, one, and most importantly, that volume growth for the sake of it and mega M&A do not equal value creation. We should not confuse growth with creating value. Let me remind you, this industry, and I include Rio here, destroyed around $250 billion of value not that long ago. Therefore, there is real strength in discipline. Two, that China is more than a customer of our products. It is a major developer, potential partner, and competitor. In some ways, we underestimated China as the new entrant in the industry, as a developer and owner of mines. Who knows who may enter our business next? Tesla? Google? Alibaba? Three, that big may not necessarily be beautiful. A focus on value and margins is here to stay. Maybe we need to be more agile and local in some ways. I will explain what I mean in a moment. Four, that partnerships and the ability to manage sustainability will define success in this industry in the decade ahead. And lastly, we must be better tuned to the changing world around us. We must adapt as we have been doing for a century or more but we need to do it quicker than ever before to stay on the front foot. So what will the next 10 years bring us? The pace of change and level of complexity will be far, far greater than in previous times. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind we will face greater regulation and scrutiny, a war for talent, and new competitors, to name but a few. In terms of resource development, maybe the majors also need to think more like fast-moving juniors. Instead of looking for the Big Bang maximum NPV development options, perhaps we should look to stage gate investments, starting with smaller mines, which can be built quickly and safely with embedded optionality for growth. At Rio, we have partnerships with our customers in aluminum, such as Apple, and our customers in iron ore, such as Bauwu. The only way we can truly tackle climate change is through partnerships across the value chain. The focus on carbon will also bring greater scrutiny on how materials are produced. 
Imagine a time when an app tells you where the metals in your EV came from and how they were mined. This is an area where technology will also play a role. Blockchain offers an independent ledger to check custody in different stages of the supply chain, something we are exploring in Diamonds. In the 2020s, this type of proof-of-origin concept will become a necessity, not the exception. Here at the LME, they are moving to exclude metal that has not been made in a way that is seen as acceptable in terms of human rights, carbon footprint, etc. Now, there's a key point on the topic of sustainability that I do want to make. There is no doubt that acting responsibly is absolutely necessary for our industry. We must continue to be part of the solution, but our approach needs to be based on a pragmatic kind of sustainability, with profitability at its heart. Only a profitable business can provide sustainable benefits to shareholders, to communities and governments. It also has to be about actions and not just words, and about mature and honest conversations about the trade-offs and the benefits. Our efforts also need to speak to everyone, not just those with the loudest voices. We must reach those in small communities and regional towns and remote locations who rely on mining to make a living, those whose voices are often unheard or drowned out. These are the people that are the unsung heroes of the mining business, our small and loyal shareholders, employees, and our suppliers, like the women's cooperative in the South Gobi Desert in Mongolia who make the PPE kit for our employees at the mine. Reading that bit uh, about Mongolia reminds me that uh, Rio took over uh, Oyutolgoi, uh, which was Ivanhoe Mines, now Turquoise Hill, uh, which is pretty much um, TRQ is a 49% uh, pure play on the Oyutolgoi asset. And, and that stock and the performance of that stock is a, a stark reminder um, that lives with me uh, as I think about the, uh, the lithium space and, and what could happen um, for gigantic projects. So th this project uh, a few years ago, um, you know, was $6 billion invested. I now hear it was up to $9.5 billion invested, one of the biggest copper mine in, in the world. Uh, but still, the, the, the stock of Turquoise Hill is, 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 you know, less than, I don't know, five or $600 million. I have a lot of learnings in that 15-year stock chart of uh, uh, Turquoise Hill. I was privileged to have been associated with that story uh, led by Robert Friedland all through um, and, and beyond Rio Tinto's uh, initial minority involvement, but, but ultimately uh, control uh, um, w without much premium. And uh, since then, um, destroying a very significant amount of, um, of shareholder value as reflected by Turquoise Hill's stock price, which had been as high as $27 and or $28 is now, um, you know, 45 cents. And now our interview with Sophie Liu and James Frith of Bloomberg NEF. Sophie, just give us a little bit about your background and uh, where you sit and, and, and James and, and what he does. And then I know there's Colin um, and just Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, and uh, as it pertains to lithium and the whole EV chain. Sure. So Bloomberg New Energy Finance, we're actually now known as Bloomberg NEF. 
We've been around for a little over a decade. We were acquired by Bloomberg in 2009. We are a research and analysis division of Bloomberg that's focused on the low-carbon technology transition that is essentially um, causing structural change in many sectors um, across the world. Uh, for specifically battery industry and for the battery materials and for transport, um, I myself oversee essentially the metals and mining team, which looks at the um, battery materials as a part of our portfolio in terms of the raw materials. Uh, my team is responsible for looking at everything up to basically about the um, the, the chemical grade level, so it's a precursor level. Um, and then everything after that uh, goes over to our battery team and um, our analyst, James Frith, who is here with us today. Um, he's on the on the storage team, and they look at essentially uh, the, the battery technology evolution, um, demand forecast, as well as um, the supply chain for um, battery components. Um, and then we have uh, Colin, as you mentioned before, he's our head of advanced transport. Um, and uh, his team um, does the forecasting for the future of transport. And they look at it from a interactive perspective of both uh, the changing fuel drive of transport. So this can include electrification, um, a transition to hydrogen or other sort of um, fuel drives, um, as well as the overall changing modal um, of transport. So they're looking at essentially theories around peak car, um, passenger behavior, car ownership behavior, and how intelligent mobility and other and new forms of car ownership uh, might be uh, sort of factoring into the overall fleet size. Um, so these are all a part of their, their sort of forecasting strategy, as well as they track very closely technology developments in intelligent mobility um, in terms of the future of automated driving and, and all those kinds of things as well. That's great. And your background before uh, Bloomberg, I think you lived in China and now you live in Australia. Is that right? Uh, yes. So I'm based in Sydney now. I've been there for a little under a year. Um, prior to this, I was with uh, Bloomberg uh, NEF for five years in China. I used to be the head of China research and I come from an energy commodities research background. James and Sophie, great to have you on the podcast. James, if I could ask you a question first relating to uh, battery size in the future. Looking at uh, Bloomberg NEF um, forecast, could you please give us a sense of what your expectation is for kilowatt hours of EV passenger vehicles in 2025? Hey, Rodney, thanks for having me on today. It's an interesting question, and it's one that's hard to get a definitive answer for just because the spread of, of vehicle segments sold is, is changing so much. So we're moving towards an era where there are kind of more SUVs being sold, and obviously the battery packs um, in there are going to be larger. But currently, based on the forecast of EV sales that we have and the average pack size going into them, the fleet-wide average for BEVs that we have in 2025 is about 64 kilowatt hours. To clarify, that's just for passenger EVs. Yeah, that's just for passenger EVs. And uh, to translate that into what we look as uh, a key variable for lithium demand is the lithium intensity per kilowatt hour that goes with that. Can you give us some uh, indication of, of what your expectation is on that front? So in general, from, the, from a lithium metal standpoint, you're looking kind of just above uh, 0.1 kilograms per kilowatt hour. Um, if you convert that to... LCE, you're looking at closer to 0.63 kilograms per, per kilowatt hour. Um, 
And you know that does change depending on what kind of chemistry mix you're forecasting. Generally, by 2025, we think that the kind of high nickel chemistries will be dominant there. So really, the NMC 811s accounting for a large share. Also, you know, NCA will still play a big role, particularly in um, uh, plug-in hybrid vehicles. But also, again, depending on 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 what your view is on Tesla, Tesla um, will influence that. They will be using NCA largely at that point still. Um, but there are some other automakers that are potentially moving towards that the use of NCA or, or lithium nickel oxide for those performance-based vehicles. So um, Toyota potentially will be using NCA. It's used NCA and it's plug-in hybrids in the past. It's very familiar with it. Um, from a kind of design point of view, it would make sense for it to stick with, with what it knows and build on that. And James, following on from that, uh, looking at the chemistries, uh, NMC 811 gaining share, how would you see that uh, penetration in the market relative to 622? So 622 is obviously has quite a large market share at the moment, um, but we think that that will peak in the next couple of years and 811 will take over. So post-2025, we think that NFC 811 will be accounting for close to half of the market. And of course, you know, there are a couple of variations of 811 and we'll probably start to see some 9.5.5 coming into the mix then. But, but yeah, we think these, these very high nickel chemistries will be what's dominant in the market. James, when we drill down from there into uh, lithium chemical demand split between carbonate and hydroxide, if we look at uh, Bloomberg's forecast in terms of 622 and the split, it looks as if you guys are leaning more towards hydroxide. So can you give us some sense of what you see as hydroxide's percentage share of, of 622 in 2025? So, yeah, I mean, when you're looking at the different chemistries, so 622 can obviously use carbonate or hydroxide, but for the highest quality material, and, and that's what's going to give you the, the longest cycle life, it's better to use a, a hydroxide source. And so currently, um, for the market split in 2025, we're looking at just under 200,000 tonnes um, of carbonate being used and uh, the remaining kind of 400,000 tonnes or so being uh, hydroxide going into the battery market. I mean, so there is some flexibility in the sense that the battery makers could maybe look at carbonate for 62, but like you said, it's not the technical ideal. Yeah, precisely. So, I mean... When you're using carbonate for um, uh, during the kind of synthesis of these uh, cathode materials, what happens is that you end up with impurities on the outside of the active material particles, and those impurities are going to lead to poor cycle life um, over the lifetime of the final battery. So really, to get the kind of best performance out of this, you really want to be using a hydroxide base. So the key issue there then, James, is uh, sintering. It's, it's how... Um the chemicals react in the sintering process. Uh, yeah, so exactly, yeah, so precisely, it's down to what happens during the sintering process um, and the material that's given off. So when you start with a carbonate-based um, lithium source, you basically end up forming carbon dioxide during the sintering process, and that can react with the um, particles. So if you have a high nickel chemistry, 811 in particular, the outside of the particle is very reactive. It'll react with that um, carbon dioxide being given off to actually form um, carbonate again. Um, 
622, not quite as um, reactive as the 811, but again, you still get this process going on, so you end up with these impurities on the outside of the particle. And do you see any other um, battery chemistries on the horizon that uh, could take market share, or is the future going to be lithium uh, high nickel uh, cathode? Yeah, it certainly seems to be the way we're going. I mean, there are some other chemistries out there that are interesting. Johnson Matthews enhanced lithium nickel oxide, of course, but again, that is a high nickel chemistry. Um, we're seeing, we've had S-Volt announce that in their European plant, they'll be producing nickel, manganese, cobalt, aluminum, oxide-based materials. So, you know, getting all the good bits in there. Um, and even they've said that they'll be producing some without cobalt. So there's quite a lot of innovation coming in, but it's essentially around the kind of same basic um, cathode material. If you look beyond that, you know, there's some interesting work going on in um, high voltage materials. So in particular, um, high voltage spinels. Um, but again, there's a lot of uh, work that needs to be um, done before those can actually be used in, in cells. And a lot of that is down to the kind of reactivity of the electrolyte with these high voltage materials. And James, do you think that could loop back into impacting the choice of cathode? Yeah, I mean, certainly. So this is kind of similar to what we saw um, in 2018 with the tight cobalt market where the battery manufacturers reacted to that. So rather than, um, you know, following the initial timelines they had on introducing higher nickel chemistries, they started moving towards them faster to minimize the cobalt content required. You know, similarly, if there's a tight market for hydroxide, maybe we'll see a delay in the uptake of uh, NMC811, for example. On a slightly different tack, but uh, looking at your forecasts and ours, which are similar in terms of uh, substantial growth in the demand for battery grade and quality hydroxide for the EV market. And considering how difficult it is to produce that quality and that specifications are likely to get more stringent as we move forward, how comfortable are you that um, by 2025 that the supply side of the equation is going to be able to deliver that high quality material? Um, on the supply side, we're not that comfortable, actually. So we do see the supply and demand balance, particularly for battery-grade hydroxide. To reach the specifications that are needed, it, it's very tight. Um, any one project not fulfilling their timelines could result in a sort of short-term deficit. Um, based off of the projects that we've tracked so far, a big part of the issue is that around 40% of um, battery grade chemical conversion capacity announced thus far that are that are you know at least reached feasibility so they can actually be included in our supply supply curve we don't include speculative projects um, they they're being developed not by the tier one producers right and so that means they're not necessarily have demonstrated a uh, a, a longer history of of producing battery-grade material on time, on cost. Um, so, and there's been some of the, some of the smaller producers have recently been bringing on new capacity. The product is being tested out in the market and sort of trying to figure out whether or not it's, it's what they need. Um, but basically, if you ask me, like, specifically on, especially on the hydroxide side, the supply and demand balance, I would say that it is, it is a tight market for sure, um, even in the near term. 
Sophie, with respect to uh, battery prices, uh, Bloomberg uh, has previously published reports suggesting that the industry, the average price at the pack level will cross the magical $100 per kilowatt hour in 2024. If we look at, what, at what's happened recently with VW and Tesla making investments and they're announcing lower prices, do you still see that uh, timeline remaining the same in 2024 or do you see that possibly coming forward? Um, that's a really good question. We have, uh, we're actually currently updating the so the battery pack price manufacturing survey. Um, we do that once a year, and um, James, unfortunately, who just left, um, he's actually the one who is conducting that survey and um, tabulating the results. Uh, so I won't be able to tell you um, what the newest results yet are because they're not public. Um, but uh, it does seem like there's an acceleration progress. Um, last year, uh, despite the fact that there some of the commodity prices had increased um, uh, or were uh, stubbornly high. Now, now they've come back down, but but back but last year when they were when they were still a little bit higher, many of the battery pack um, uh, the battery manufacturers were still able to report a reduction in their overall production costs, um, despite raw materials not getting much cheaper. Um, and a lot of it really has to do with efficiencies of scale of the new assets that they bring online, just like what you mentioned for Tesla, um, and then. Um, as well as efficiencies that they've uh, been able to implement across uh, certain different parts of their manufacturing uh, process, in terms of uh, just you know efficiency in the use of materials, as well as um, better productive production results. Um, so yeah, that would be basically the the best answer I can give you for now. Do you think the possibility of uh, VW and Tesla crossing the hundred dollar per kilowatt hour at the battery pack level earlier than anticipated could? trigger any increased uh, demand for EVs? Um, it might. So the way that the battery pack price feeds through to our EV demand forecast has to do with um, essentially how it factors into the cost competitiveness of um, total cost of ownership of um, electric vehicles um, in different countries. We take into account many different factors when we um, calculate the cost of ownership of um, vehicles in the different countries. Um, some of it has to do with uh, the size and the type of models of vehicles that we see being deployed in those markets in certain years. Um, some of it has to do with um, the uh, cross-comparison with sticker prices of other sort of competing ICE vehicles in the market. And then some of it has to do with um, competitive dynamics in terms of electric uh, charging costs versus um, fuel costs. Uh, but of course, um, the battery pack itself does play a major role in how expensive or cheap uh, electric vehicle will be in any of the um, many global markets that we track in our in our global EV forecast. Um, so if the battery pack price um, as, an, as a global average uh, comes down faster or even comes down faster in any one specific regional market, that could accelerate the crossover point um, between um, the price competitiveness in terms of ownership costs uh, to the uh, consumer um, in that specific country, and that would result in possibly a slightly faster adoption earlier on um, because of that. Uh, so, uh, and one thing I should also clarify is that the battery pack price that we report, in, um, at least publicly, uh, clients can see the, the regional breakdown, but um, uh, publicly we only disclose a global average. The global average is volume weighted. Um, so that does mean that even if certain producers in one of their um, gigafactories in one specific location is able to achieve uh, a lower uh, you know, per pack or per kilowatt hour production cost, um, that may not 
move the needle a lot for the entire industry. If you're, if we're still considering that there are other factories that might be uh, producing um, at different volumes, but generally, um, actually, the the Chinese manufacturers and the Korean manufacturers are leading in price reductions, anyways. Um, but in addition to some of the um, the the Western ones that you've pointed out, like Tesla. If we look at the recent announcements from Daimler and their move uh, or increased move into uh, batteries for the uh, trucking space, and uh, if we look at the increased demand for electric buses and even now short-haul flights. Does Bloomberg see any potential uh, new game changes or areas in which demand could be increased that would uh, see a pickup in battery and therefore lithium demand? Uh, yeah, so our electric vehicle outlook that we do every year, um, we've been expanding the categories of types of vehicles that are covered by our forecast. So besides forecasting the adoption of electric vehicles amongst passenger vehicles, um, we also look at uh, commercial vehicles and um, bus fleets. So uh, in terms of the overall electrification of the bus fleet, um, it's mostly driven by public procurement projects that are being announced in Asia, particularly China, um, at least in terms of overall volume. Of course, there's um, new and uh, more and more sort of new announcements coming out from um, markets all over the world. Um, every day. So um, when we revisit our EV, EV bus forecast, we do expect to see that perhaps that portion will grow. Um, but that is definitely one of the drivers, especially when it comes to demand for LFP and for sort of um, battery chemistries that are not high nickel. Um, I think that um, in markets like China, they see uh, electric bus adoption as a way of maybe absorbing some of the manufacturing capacity for LFP chemistry um, battery packs that had um, been that is being not siphoned away, but maybe shifting quickly uh, in the passenger EV market because of regulations that are essentially incentivizing the development of more dense um, battery packs. Um, so e-bus is definitely a thing. And then we see a lot of promise in um, electrification of lightweight commercial trucks as well, um, not um, to the medium and heavy duty. Medium and heavy duty is a little bit more difficult uh, given just you know the, the dynamics of, of, the, of the weight um, that's being pulled by those um, by those um, uh, engine types. Um, so we break down our commercial uh, truck forecast in terms of future fuel adoption between um, hydrogen, uh, natural gas, electric, and then uh, just traditional ICE vehicle, diesel as well. So um, we, also, we also forecast that into our overall sort of battery adoption forecast. Moving across to lithium supply and demand uh, and looking at your uh, de-risk supply numbers, and uh, they, I might have looked at slightly dated um, demand expectations from your side, but there is still a differential. Uh, looks to be some element of oversupply, but that's you know not broken down into carbonate hydro and hydroxide. But we've seen Albemarle and Tangshi and a couple of others looking to postpone or shelve or call it what you will, but effectively push out expansion plans on the hydroxide side. Do you see the, uh, the, the uh, potential for the industry to, in the, in the absence of uh, having an LME contract or some other mechanism in which to forward sell their production that they would look to curtail future supply? Yeah, of course, there's that possibility, yeah. I mean, the, the nature of forecasting is you can only um, account for likely actions, but you can't 
I, I don't want to, um, when we forecast the risk uh, capacity, we base it off of a range of technical and financial and operational uh, considerations for each company. Um, so we drill down to essentially how much cash do they have on hand, how much fundraising have they been able to achieve, what sort of off-taker arrangements have they um, achieved, uh, what is the technical grade of the material that is both their feedstock as well as their output, um, and also their sort of technical experience and competencies given sort of historical performances and things like that. Um, these are all involved in our de-risking methodology for all of the producers, um, and we try to be um, as... Uh, even about it as possible in terms of um, basically taking the numbers at face value but then de-risking it according to um, the viability of some of the things that are being reported. Um, and then for the really, really near term, so like 2019, 2020 production volumes, we do take into account some of the guidance numbers from the producers themselves in terms of what they say they're you know, thinking about producing. Um, and especially for the tier one producers, uh, a little bit maybe we'll take them for their, for their word a little bit more. Um, unless there are really good reasons to expect, uh, you know, a disruption to any one of their particular assets. Um, but in terms of what the market will do in response to uh, a possible oversupply in the market, since both demand and supply um, are in play here in the sense that these are both forecasts, it would be um, almost irresponsible um, to assume that people will furlough uh, a certain amount of capacity. Um, because they see there being uh, an amount of oversupply, especially because it would be very subjective for us to assume who is going to make the decision to furlough their capacity versus others. Now, obviously, we can sort of make um, a judgment based off of the cost curve as to who probably should uh, furlough versus others, but it would not be fair for us to just simply say, well, this one is definitely going to be furloughed and this one won't, or this one will definitely um, uh, curtail production and this one won't. So does that help to clarify in the sense that our supply curve is... Um, in um, the interpretation sense, I encourage everyone to always remember that it's a best estimate of the amount of capacity that can realistically be brought to market, okay? So we're not forecasting actual production. Nobody should be attempting to forecast actual production because that's based off of so many other factors that occur, um, whether it be weather or political risks or whatever, right? Um, so no one should be able to 100% forecast forward going five years what actual production will be. Any uh, thoughts on, I guess, near term? We, we, uh, I was just at the LME, and uh, Sophie was on a panel with four or five others, and uh, the, the Ken Hoffman at McKinsey asked the question at the end, uh, Chinese prices are uh, 7,000. We're here a year from now. Uh, who, who thinks uh, you know, where a price is going to be, up, down, or, or, or about the same? So, uh, Sophie, why don't you share your view on that and, and also maybe for 2021, 2022? And, and I don't know if we discussed what your long-term forecasts are, if you are able to disclose those. Um, uh, I think Fast Markets has out there a $15,000 um, you know, lithium carbonate price in 2025. They're saying uh, the seeds of, of the next boom are being sown by the the decline now. Um, that Rodney, you've talked about uh, incentive pricing. You know, needing to be you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand. If you factor in all of the um, you know the cost delays and, and cost of financing, you can't just look at um, uh, you know cash cost. Uh, you know, six, seven thousand. So, do you have a, a view on that that you could publicly share? <laughs> can definitely put us a little bit on the on the line on that one. I think uh, the answer that I gave at the at the event was that um, we're expecting maybe just around that, around seven thousand plus or minus a ten percent you know variation. Um, longer term, I 
don't have anything to disclose publicly yet. In lithium-ion rocks, lithium-ion bull, and through our respective LinkedIn and Twitter posts, Rodney and I may share with our audience some rationale for a stock for which we have conviction, to own or not to own. If you agree or disagree with and act on or against the rationale of anything said or written in this or any other lithium-ion rocks or lithium-ion bull, that's your free choice. But to be clear, what you are listening to or reading is not investment advice and may not be unbiased. It should not be construed as an investment recommendation to buy or sell any security. Rodney and I are not registered investment advisors nor broker-dealers. Please visit libull.com for further disclaimers.